National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If there are topics you'd like us to cover, please email KYMN Radio, and I'll do my very best to find experts who can address your topic. Let's get started. We have a great show for you today. U.S. national security. That's a broad topic. It's also an umbrella term to cover all aspects of the tools of national power. Those tools are diplomacy, information, military, and economic power. And national security professionals often shorten this to to the term DIME, which, of course, stands for Diplomacy, Information, Military, and Economic Power. Today we're going to focus a bit on military power, but we'll also touch on how this aspect of military power supports other areas of American national security policy and objectives. There's an old saying in the military, amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. From my perspective as a career intelligence officer in the U.S. Navy, I know that if you can destroy or disrupt an enemy's supply lines, you're halfway to victory. Today we're welcoming retired U.S. Navy Captain Will Clark to the show. Will Clark earned a Bachelor of Science degree in mathematics from the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis and was commissioned into the U.S. Navy in May of 1990. He later earned a master's degree in finance and contract management from the Naval Postgraduate School and additional education at both Wharton and Columbia Business Schools. Will served 25 years in the U.S. Navy, the majority of which was as a Supply Corps officer. He's deployed afloat on aircraft carriers, a surface combatant, and a submarine, and ashore at Camp Lemonnier in Djibouti on the continent of Africa. On his final assignment, he led a logistics team responsible for $36 billion in contracts, supporting 5.2 million items across nine different DOD supply chains. Since retiring from the U.S. Navy in 2015, Will has led turnaround initiatives for Best Buy here in Minnesota and the global supply chain for Atlas Air Worldwide out in New York. He is a noted corporate board director and strategic advisor, and I'm honored to welcome Will Clark to our show. Captain Will Clark, welcome to National Security This Week. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm glad uh, you reached out to me a couple of months ago, and uh, we kind of talked about this, so I'm glad we could find a time for us to uh, connect here. So thank you. Yeah, this will be a great show. Let's start with some background with uh, on you and your career, and, and I'll come clean with our audience. Will Clark is an actu- actually is a classmate of mine from Annapolis, uh, so we've, we've known each other for quite some time. Will, how did you get into the U.S. Navy Supply Corps? What, what led you to that path? Well, John, um, I, I started off as a surface warfare officer, which is uh, the uh, uh, the line uh, community there within the Navy that really is responsible for driving uh, ships and, uh, um, and 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 the like. So my commission, my 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 initial uh, commitment uh, uh, out of Annapolis was uh, five years, and uh, um, being on the surface ship in you know the engineering department and uh, really having a uh, a good time at it. Uh, I I knew at the point that I was going to you know get out, uh, serve my time in five years, and then transition. But what ended up happening was I also knew that my time on that particular ship in San Diego was going to be uh, um, about three years, and I would have another two years to serve. So at that point, I really started thinking about uh, what sort of tangible skill set could I uh, learn from uh, within. Of the Navy, such that when I did in fact transition, 
um, it would be um, you know easier for me to um, outside of the leadership uh, perspective but to uh, translate my skill set into the uh, corporate world so that really led me to uh, the Navy Supply Corps of course uh, which your you know is the uh, um, uh, supply chain management, uh, logistics, uh, finance, uh, all of the business-type uh, principles that help to uh, run the Navy. So that's what drew me to it, and I, uh, I transferred into Supply Corps, and, and uh, uh, to my chagrin, um, I started having a lot of fun, a lot of great assignments, <laughs> meeting a lot of folks, and uh, uh, gaining some, uh, some skills that uh, uh, ended up you know, having me make it a career, so it was a uh, you know good good uh, a good experience for myself. That sounds a little bit like uh, what I went through. I, I promised myself that I would I would stay in the Navy as long as they kept offering me great assignments. Uh, sounds like uh, you ran into the into the same thing. No, it, it, exactly. It was you know great assignments, a lot of learning, a um, lot of uh, you know meeting a lot of people and. And really uh, going, you know, different places uh, throughout the world on, you know, different types of uh, uh, platforms and, and, and ships and, and meeting some great folks. So it was, yeah. it was really, uh, really a fun time. So you went through your, your career, rose through the ranks. You became a senior leader in the U.S. Navy Supply Corps. Uh, what kind of lessons did you learn about leadership in the U.S. Navy that particularly, particularly impacted your personal leadership style? Well, you know, the ethos there within the Navy, um, the, uh, what you hear a lot of people say is uh, ship, uh, shipmate, uh, self, uh, where the ship, as you know, is the, the overall mission, the overall unit that you're working with, and shipmates being the folks that you work alongside, um, whether it be your bosses or your peers or, or people who uh, work uh, directly for you. And uh, being able to focus first on the mission and then the people around you and how to make them successful so that you all uh, can, you know, reach forward in, 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 in um, completing that common goal. And then, you know, worrying about yourself thereafter. You always have to take care of yourself. But what I've always found is that if, if one is oriented um, at the bigger picture um, then, you know, uh, others who are working around them, then yourself, you know, things are going to be just fine. So I found that to be, um, uh, you know, really poignant uh, within my naval career and also even outside here in the, uh, uh, the corporate world. Um, the other piece I always found that was really fascinating was um, being able to, you know, be in an environment where you can ask lots of questions to learn. And whether that be questions of the people that, um, um, that you work with or you work for or, or some of those who may be, you know, closer to an issue or closer to a problem such that uh, you uh, unlock the potential of the thought process so that you can further uh, shed light and uh, gain perspective, I found that to be very fascinating and uh, um, you know, really helped me along my path. So it sounds like uh, y- y- you would uh, you possess what I would refer to as a, a strong uh, set of uh, or a strong skill in, in the emotional intelligence uh, side of things, where you recognize that as a leader, uh, your job is to make everybody else shine around you. Uh, would you say that's kind of true? I, I would say that absolutely, and um, I, and I think as a leader, the more you learn. 
uh, along the path because you never stop really learning if you ask questions. And what you end up finding is that often, you know, in asking questions, you know, answers come forward that you may not have even really, you know, thought about uh, based upon different perspectives and uh, uh, based upon, you know, where uh, folks may see it. So being able to, you know, draw all that out, draw it together, and make informed uh, decisions um, is really, really key. And, and not ever that the decisions that uh, you make have to be um, 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 very, very, um, you know, pointed, but really pushing you in a particular direction um, is really what's key. And then other answers start coming from there. So the trick is you got to check your ego at the door because you never know what that young uh, third-class petty officer might be able to teach you, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't even have to be a third-class petty officer. It could be a, uh, you know, a recruit or a uh, E2. You, you never know. Yeah. But uh, it all helps to, uh, you know, better informed perspectives. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So Captain Will Clark, you retired from the Navy uh, in 2015 and took a position with Best Buy here in Minnesota. Then you transitioned over to Atlas Air Worldwide back in your home state of New York. How is the civilian logistics business similar to the military, and how is it different from the military? I think the, one of the biggest similarities uh, with uh, logistics and supply chain, whether it be uh, inside uh, uh, the military or outside, is you know, when, you know, when things are going well, there's no news, no fuss, <laughs> and uh, um, you are... Um, you can take a little bit of solace. Things can be relatively quiet, especially when they're humming along. Um, the, the, the other similarity is, of course, if something uh, happens where something goes wrong, you, you, you miss a shipment or you miss some sort of um, uh, a key node there, you, you never get a shortage of, uh, of, of folks who are who are no you know who are not bashful in pointing out any shortcomings. <laughs> so those are you know uh, some of the similarities there um, that you know I find uh, within you know logistics and supply chain. And what we're also finding now, I mean, we kind of already, or at least I already felt that you know within the uh, uh, in the military. But uh, when it comes to uh, resiliency and being able to have backup plans. Um, in the military, that is huge, and it seems like that that has all at least within my career has pretty much always been a a focus. Um, what we've come to find here, especially within um, uh, you know as a result of last year, you know with COVID and and, and supply chain resiliency, we're seeing that that is has become more and more of a focus. Um, within the uh, uh, civilian world, and I think in the years to come, that is going to, you know, stay as a focus, such that we don't have um, uh, many hiccups where uh, supply lines and 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 uh, you know manufacturing is a shutdown as a result of lack of resiliency due to uh, having a singular supply chain that may be overseas in a particular country or particular types of vendors. Mm-hmm. So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Navy Captain Will Clark, and we're discussing the role of logistics in the military and across global supply chains. Uh, So, uh, Will, let's get back specifically to our topic for today, military logistics. I mentioned up front that uh, amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics. Does that saying hold true in your extensive experience? 
Absolutely, it, it does hold true. And uh, what, what what we tend to find is that uh, uh, those organizations uh, that uh, place a uh, um, uh, a key um, leadership positions in the logistics arena um, are those that tend to then you know put more resources towards it, such that it becomes a strategic imperative of the organization of the company uh, such that you need to move your goods and you need to have um, uh, uh, plans in place such that if things go wrong then you can still you know meet the mission so at the highest levels uh, of organizations um, when you see that the emphasis is placed on you know whether it be the manufacturing whether it be on the predictive maintenance, whether it be on some of those other key pillars in order to keep the organization successful, that further professionalizes uh, the, the, the community within that particular organization such that uh, it's relatively known that, A, you have key people and you have need key systems in place in order to uh, be successful and, and, and be efficient going forward. Let's uh, let's drill down a little bit on that uh, military logistics side, uh, and we'll talk. We'll focus a little bit on the Navy, since uh, you know we're both uh, former retired Navy officers. What's it like providing for the care and feeding of, say, the crew of a U.S. Navy submarine? You know, it's um, it's it's it it's very key um, <laughs> within when you talk about the care and the feeding of the crew. Um, on the submarine, what you find is uh, the, uh, the logistics systems uh, within the submarine forces and, and submarines is really a couple of different divisions uh, on the ship. One is, you know, of course, uh, the food and uh, making the food and, you know, that those four meals per day. And, of course, as you uh, are probably aware, often on the submarine, the only time people really know what time of day it is is by the meals that they eat because it's a constant <laughs> right. operation. Yeah. Because of that, um, the quality, you know, of obviously the food is really, really important. And uh, the, 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 the cooks there and the type of food that you end up serving is, uh, um, it, it really means a lot to the people to, uh, you know, keep them going, keep them happy and, uh, you know, focused, if you will. The other piece there is um, with the parts and the supplies that are needed in order to keep that submarine operational. Um, basically, it's, it's, you know, you have lists of uh, what's needed, when it's needed, and uh, you really need to ensure that you have all that material on board such that uh, once you go out for your deployment or you go out to sea, that submarine dives, you have it or you don't. And, uh, and, and the, the way the systems are are in place is as such that um, it's, it's, it's pretty much, um, you know, well-known what you have to have, and the rest of the infrastructure essentially helps you to get those particular items so that um, if something breaks while on the way, you can actually fix um, that p particular piece of machinery, um, at least for long enough to get the more help that you need. Yeah. So, Will Clark, you, you did a deployment with a, with a U.S. Navy submarine, and you also did a, a deployment with a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier. So uh, we're talking the exponentially larger uh, supply chain requirements uh, uh, for, a, for an aircraft carrier, I would assume, than for a Navy submarine. Navy submarines have a crew of about, what is it, one, 135? And you've got, what's that? 135 to 150, yeah. depending on the uh, 
type of submarine, absolutely. Yeah, and then an aircraft carrier talking somewhere between around 5,500 with the air wing and bark, is that right? Essentially, yes, it is. And uh, <laughs> it's just a, you know, I like to, when I talk about aircraft carriers to uh, folks, um, I like to tell them to just consider a, a, uh, an international airport that moves. And yeah. All the things that would have to go into that, you know, and this, of course, this airport, you know, has about 70 or so aircraft that are, you know, taking off and landing, you know, within a, uh, uh, um, um, a thousand, a little over a thousand feet long and uh, 250 feet wide, you know, all at the same time. So you can imagine the dynamics of an operation in order to uh, keep it going. So uh, is it roughly sort of the same uh, workload or dramatically greater workload to supply the aircraft carrier? It's, it's dramatically greater um, because not only are you worrying about uh, what's happening on the aircraft carrier with those, you know, aircraft, um, but you're, you're, you're feeding, again, you know, 5,000 people. And then, of course, there's other um, um, ships that are in company when you are, in fact, uh, deployed of which you are, you know, overseeing some of that operation as well. So you're worrying about, you know, the fuel for the aircraft. You're worrying about uh, the parts for the, uh, uh, not only the aircraft, but uh, parts for the ship as well. You're also um, worried about, you know, paying um, uh, the folks. Uh, and we are also worried about when you do pull into some of your uh, foreign ports, um, having the uh, right um, uh, uh, facilities in order to, um, um, you know, you know, house uh, uh, the crew and the, and the people as, as, as well as any kind of tours and, and all the spaces that go on board the ship, all the hazardous material uh, that's there. So it's a, it's a massive operation and it and, uh, takes a lot of time and there are a lot of people to, uh, um, um, that you're in charge of the care and feeding of. And, and of course, it's it's all an, an orchestrated effort because the way people uh, you know work together in order to um, you know for the good of of the operation is is really really poetic. So let's expand it out a, a little bit more. Uh, let, let's say uh, we're talking about you know U.S. Navy's seventh fleet out of Japan. Uh, what, what would it be like being part of the the leadership team providing for the needs of roughly seventy five ships and tens of thousands of sailors? How complicated right. does that become? No, that's a, that, that, that's a big tasking. Um, haven't had the uh, the opportunity um, to uh, lead a, uh, a, a fulfillment center out there in uh, Yokosuka, Japan, of which um, um, you know basically about uh, three point uh, six million uh, feet of, uh, of space uh, across from different sites and uh, different uh, warehousing facilities in order to manage all of the parts and the supplies that are needed that come through, in fact, uh, uh, ships that come and transit through Japan, and, of course, some of the other joint forces, if you will, uh, uh, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps teams that also uh, need to be supplied. So massive operation. Um, it's a you know a, a huge fulfillment operation where it carries uh, many different types of uh, you know items, whether it be can, you know food, construction material, um, different types of uh, uh, equipment and uh, uniforms and and medical supplies. So it was massive massive effort, um, but uh, you know working through and with 
the, um, uh, the sailors and uh, U.S. civilians who are also uh, stationed uh, out there, and of course the uh, Japanese uh, local nationals who are, make up part of the workforce, really made for a very, very interesting and uh, rewarding experience and dynamic out there. I know that uh, since I served in 7th Fleet as well, uh, we refer to that as the Forward Deployed Naval Forces, uh, FDNF. And uh, when you're out there operating out of the bases in Japan, you're, you're underway operational a good part of the year. Uh, so I have to think that as a, if you're running the, you know, the, the fulfillment center, as you refer to it, uh, a little bit like the Amazon uh, term, that you have to know where all the ships are going pretty much all the time so that you can meet their logistics supply needs. Is that, is that true? Absolutely, and, and that's, that's really key. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, you're, you're always you're shipping or fulfilling um, you know, parts to a moving target, so to speak, right? Because obviously these uh, ships and these forces, they transit, and if you're not able to uh, send uh, um, the, 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 the items um, on time, then you have to send it forward to another particular location where that uh, uh, vessel or ship or those troops may be operating. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a matter of uh, knowing the schedules and, and uh, when the requests or the requirements come in, being able to fill them and working back and forth, of course, with those uh, other nodes in order to uh, properly track where the material is going and when it gets there. And um, so it really makes for a very interesting dynamic and uh, um, a lot of teamwork that, that's involved with making that happen. Now, the other thing with the uh, Seventh Fleet uh, um, ships and forces that are there, probably, let's talk primarily the ships, um, depending on what happens in the world, um, they may be pierside for a while, and uh, uh, within a matter of hours, those ships could get underway depending on what's going on. So right. that also uh, speeds up um, and heightens the, uh, the, the operational necessity of recognizing um, uh, the, the schedules of those uh, particular forces as well. So my guess is that a lot of people listening right now think about terms of, uh, you know, ships pulling into port and being resupplied uh, pierside. Uh, but one of the unique things about the United States Navy is that we do an awful lot of what's called underway replenishment. Uh, so we have the ability to provide uh, extra fuel, parts, food, the whole, whole nine yards uh, while we're underway uh, at sea. Is that a more complicated part of the process for logistics? It does certainly complicate it, but it also makes it a lot more resilient as well, right? Yeah. Because often what happens is um, whenever uh, the ships pull in uh, uh, to port is when they primarily want to get uh, its, uh, a lot of its supplies. But also, uh, as a result of that, there are um, floating uh, ships that are out uh, um, in different parts of the world uh, called a logistic support for ships that um, also carry parts and supplies as well, such that um, and fuel, such that um, they can also continue to what's called top off the forces, which is give them a little bit more uh, than um, um, you know what they otherwise would have normally taken. Because every day, as a ship is underway, what is it doing? It's using its supplies, it's using its fuel, it's using its food, but you know. Four or five days out, um, it's really able to get more based upon uh, those other uh, uh, vessels that are out there. Sure. Uh, 
So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your final assignment. Uh, you, you managed 5.2 million items in contracts covering 36 billion dollars across nine different DoD supply chains. So, I, so I got to ask you, Will, when did you sleep? Well, you know, it's a, it's a team effort, right? <laughs> so it was part of the DLA Defense Logistics Agency there that's headquartered in Fort Belvoir, Virginia. So, you know, I had the, uh, the, the, the fortune of being the uh, chief of staff for all of the uh, proc- you know, procurement activities uh, within it. So it's really a, a large team effort of folks uh, all over at different uh, headquarters, uh, uh, places of which, you know, you know working with um, um, uh, uh, the defense industrial base, if you will, to be able to uh, manage those uh, supply chains of which uh, you're talking food and lubricants and construction material and and uh, um, um, uh, industrial equipment. It was really a whole team effort that came in um, that was able to support that. And the unique part about it is not only was it um, the primarily for the Department of Defense, but when things happen in different parts of the world, um, uh, the DLA, Defense Logistics Agency, and other folks were able to uh, uh, chime in and, and, and really help. And it's specifically what we're talking about is uh, um, you go back to the 2013, you know, 14 time frame with the uh, um, Ebola uh, that broke out there in... Uh, um, West Africa, yeah. Africa there, where it was a lot of um, uh, supplies and you know tents and 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 different types of equipment that um, the Department of Defense was able to uh, uh, help with in lending and shipping and sending uh, to these areas. Sometimes even prior to being officially asked for its help and assistance. So really a team effort there with the uh, with the DLA. So proactive in nature because you can anticipate what requests are coming from civilian political leadership. Absolutely. And yeah. if it's um, you know, some sort of humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, we we have a good idea of what's gonna be needed depending on what the particular um um particular type of uh, disaster was. So sure. it's, it's pretty much, uh, you know, built into, you know, a lot of the planning that goes on to, you know, and with, you know, the United States or military sure. to be able to help and assist as needed. Um, so. Okay. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Navy Captain Will Clark, and we're discussing the role of logistics in the military and across global supply chains. Uh, So, Will, uh, does the U.S. military use the, quote-unquote, just-in-time logistics models frequently used by commercial companies? Yes, um, it is. uh, I don't know if we... Yeah, bottom line is, yes, it does. Uh, With respect to being able to... um, uh, to have those particular parts and supplies delivered uh, when needed, where needed, um, is something that's huge and it's something that is key, and it continues to be uh, key uh, going forward because of the efficiency that's needed um, based upon, as you well know, uh, you know, constrained resource environments, right? So it, it's, it's not about, you know, having more, but it's having the right items uh, when it's needed and being able to predict what may be needed based upon the types of equipment that needs to be supported. So that, my, my guess would be that also limits how much uh, 
inventory you need to maintain and have uh, warehousing capability for if you're using more of a just-in-time logistics model. Is that is that true, or am I completely off base? Oh, that's very true. And uh, when you think about it, um, you know, just for within my time frame or our time frame when we were within the uh, um, in uniform, uh, going back into the you know. Uh, early to, you know, mid-90s where inventories was a lot more, had a lot more um, line items that were um, in place, different places throughout the world, and um, based upon, you know, more uh, predictive uh, type um, activities with uh, the maintenance that's, that's required and, and just with uh, technology uh, improvements, it's really more so about having, you know, it's all about risk management, right, and right. having items that are needed, um, and you, there may be certain items that will be put in place in a particular theater just in case, but what we're starting to find is that's becoming less and less um, uh, now and more so where it's all going to be essentially centralized and being able to uh, rely on the pipeline in order to get a particular item different parts of the world very quickly is really what's become uh, really, really key. And then, of course, the visibility of where the items are and how long it's going to take and where it would be needed and for what particular reason so that you can put less money into having massive inventories and uh, more into having the right items where it's needed and and find and, and, and having, um, the, you know, pinpoint visibility of um, those particular items. So I'm going I'm to follow up on that uh, question. Uh, I read an article not too long ago uh, discussing this concept of a, the U.S. Marine Corps is looking into a, a logistics idea, uh, the warehouse of the future, they sort of refer to it. We're, we're talking about a massive web of 5G-connected sensors tracking literally every object in real time everywhere inside that supply chain. Uh, I know you're kind of a technology guy. Uh, how do you think something like that will improve or impact uh, military logistics uh, supply chains? Well, I think that's a, um, yes, um, I, I did see that article as well um, with that 5G connection there and the, the um, actual um, uh, contract award in order for further research there. What that's going to do is, is um, again, be able to further um, reduce um, the staffing that may be required in order to maintain those inventories different places um, and will further enhance the, and when I say maintain it, meaning with respect to, you know, inventorying it and, and you know, different times a year and, and having these uh, um, uh, systems and, and, and people in place. But it's really about, it gets back to the visibility of where items are and, of course, information is power. If you know where it is and you know how to get it and, and it's, it's, it's quicker to be able to uh, uh, move it around uh, when needed, I think it's, it's certainly going to you know, continue to be the wave that uh, 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 the military and, and not only that but uh, you know, other you know, commercial um, uh, entities go with respect to increasing uh, the efficiency and being able to manage the risk at the enterprise level with respect to the inventories that are needed in order to support the forces. Sure. So you were a professional Supply Corps officer in the U.S. Navy. What was the toughest part of your job? I think, 
the toughest part was probably um, continuing to, although it was, a, it, it was tough, but it was also uh, a great opportunity, but really manage relationships uh, between the, the operating forces, if you will, and, and the people within the organization, and then those who are um, um, uh, fulfilling the different requirements. So it was really about customer service all the time um, within the supply core, uh, customer service within, uh, you know, working uh, with the other parts of the organization who were not um, um, logistics professionals, right? Because you, what you often find many different places is that um, um, sometimes there's an attitude, hey, just give me my parts <laughs> and uh, don't worry about the rest. Don't ask any questions. Just give me what I need when I need it. But it's, part of it is the education uh, of the um, uh, and helping to move the organization to be more business focused mm-hmm. um, was really a, a, a challenge, but it was also a great opportunity and lots of learning uh, occurred within, you know, as a result of that. And, you know, really being able to uh, continue to, you know, work and mold and, and, and grow the people that uh, I was entrusted to lead was uh, always a unique challenge, but always a, a, a worthy one at the end. So my guess is is that those lessons you learned as a Navy supply officer probably paid off uh, pretty well for your time with both Best Buy and uh, Atlas Air Worldwide. Is that true? Absolutely. No, it absolutely did, because fundamentally speaking, uh, customer service uh, it was, it was always needed, was always the key and being able to, uh, um, you know, help others be more successful, you know, based upon the service that you can provide was uh, really part of the, uh, um, the, the key to success going forward. Sure. So, Will Clark, we have just a, a couple of minutes left, and I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, what else would you like uh, to say about the women and men in the U.S. military's logistics units? I think they're the uh, the most dedicated folks I've ever really come across um, for the fact of you know uh, how they operate and the the ability to um, learn and understand and, and and help others was really really key and it was always a pleasure you know being part of the teams whether it be um, in the you know on a ship or you know on a shore station in the United States or even um, I had a, had the uh, um, a pleasure of being, you know, on the continent of Africa, working with some folks uh, from uh, the different uh, forces, if you will. Uh, I had some members of my team from the Army, the uh, Air Force, and the uh, Marine Corps logistics professionals, and just the the um, the hunger in which to um, you know operate and to um, you know fulfill different requirements was really really. Um, eye-opening and refreshing no matter where I went and, you know, dealing with the teams there. So that was the, that, that's, the, that's the biggest thing. And, um, and, and just the dedication to success is uh, what I found uniquely um, rewarding working with the team. Uh, so, Will Clark, what are you working on right now? You know, what's next for you? So, um, you know, currently working, you know, for me it's, it's all about a life of impact. Uh, you know, having a great time as a uh, uh, corporate board director for a, a public company out in uh, Colorado, and um, also working with uh, um, and advising uh, 
a couple of companies right now, one of which is in Silicon Valley that's uh, looking at um, uh, revolutionizing the way governments do it, uh, small uh, procurements of, uh, you know, items for less than $2,500 using artificial intelligence. So that's, that's pretty rewarding in being able to help and give back uh, to the uh, 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 defense community, if you will. And, um, and just uh, uh, being able to be in a position to, uh, you know, help elevate others uh, going forward and, and, uh, um, and helping companies do better. So continuing to build out um, um, avenues in which I can, you know, help and assist, you know, based upon my, uh, uh, not only my military background, but the commercial background as well, in the growth and turnaround space and global supply chain, as well as, of course, uh, that risk, enterprise risk management uh, via uh, different uh, systems is, is really where it's at. So, uh, you know, life is good at this point, and I just, uh, you know, uh, look forward to continuing to, uh, you know, help as I go forward. Sure. Uh, so, folks, we've come to the end of our show today. Uh, Captain Will Clark, thank you for joining us today on National Security This Week. John, thanks for having me. I certainly, you know, look forward to uh, uh, our continued uh, relationship and, you know, helping any way that I can. Great. So, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. Uh, Will, hey, listen, you take care. Uh, I'll give you a call uh, later. Uh, Folks, we're here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to cover, please contact KYMN Radio. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everyone. Take care. Is he off? Oh, yeah. Okay. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. How do you protect yourself from the new forms of the coronavirus? 